You're listening to Almost Diplomatic, DC-based podcast that discusses geopolitics, national security, a whole bunch of nonsense over beers. And as a disclaimer, the views and comments made during this episode are those of the participants and do not represent any entity that they volunteer with or are employed by. Enjoy! Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Almost Diplomatic. I'm your host, Ryan Young, and joining me today is... Kevin, Lex Cardone, Robert Thomas, and we're just guessing around doing full names again. Still cool. Uh, he's, he's like Madonna. Yeah, just, it's, it's now just it's, Kevin. It's a one name. It's, yeah. one, one I'm name thinking thing. of adopting he's, a symbol as my name. He's like, like he's, he's like Big Lovin'. Um, anyway, <laughs> we're recording on March third, twenty twenty, and we're back and we're talking about nomads today um, and kind of like you know the hit, not the history and stuff. We're not gonna do, we're not gonna bore you with this stuff. We're kind of just the well, maybe need, bore you a little bit yeah i mean you're a little bored I mean, you're you're listening to us you're you know it's a given um nomads are awesome there's a lot yeah. of fun history <laughs> there is a lots of fun destruction um but kind of looking at you know the the nomad versus settled society and kind of what that means and what where we're at today um as far as nomadic society has dropped significantly since um you know the good old days <laughs> good old days i mean i, I lived to 30 this is great <laughs> <laughs> oh no warlords are coming Measles, what's that, poppycock? <laughs> I like that you went in the uh, Pepperidge Farm. <laughs> Pepperidge Farm remembers measles. Uh, so does Portland. <laughs> oh. So oh, does man. Santa Monica. <laughs> yeah. Good, good Sorry, all of our California that listeners. That would be a fun tangent are very, yeah. about how the nomads spread plague, but... Good, good job, lefties. Um, anyway. <laughs> no comment. So, before, yeah, before we get to any of that, as always, we're getting to our beers. And today... Oh, drum roll, please. We got Shucker. Shucker? Are, are those crabs on the beer? No. Those are horses. Cool. They are very small. <laughs> but there's a bunch of... Oh, you can have one to play with. Right. <laughs> See, I love the theme based, you know, horses are and have, like, are now still and always have been the staple of nomadic society. Um, and now they're, any now they're for polo. Now they're now it's just a bunch of white people playing polo on this logo. <laughs> Poor horses. Yeah, I forgot the bottle opener. Pause. No, just, just it's on the fridge. Just grab it real quick. We're taking a quick commercial break, folks. But uh, no, um, so it's the Chucker Czech style Pilsner from um, Old Busthead Brewery. They're out near Warrington. It's in, in which is in Fucker County. Uh, <laughs> Fuck here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Virginia. It's all fucked. Also known as Fuck here. <laughs> yeah. So, I wa- when I walked around Total Wine today, I was like, I need to find a beer that has horses on it. This was the one. <laughs> I mean, yes, they're playing polo, which is not like, you know, Mongol invasion. But... <laughs> but it draws on the skills of those pioneers from thousands of years ago. Yeah. If you can shoot, uh, shoot a... Bow and arrow backwards on a horse, you can play polo. Well, this with is the skulls very, of your enemies. This is very drinkable at a polo match. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the yeah. idea. He says from extensive experience, <laughs> just like uh, all the regular Americans wearing my, my Roger to. Stone seersucker hat, drinking this. Oh, good lord! Yuppie piece of shit. I, you kind of made me throw <laughs> up in my mouth a little bit. There, good. Lex. That was the uh, that was the goal. He did nothing wrong. Um, yeah, this is it's a good pilsner. So, I mean, it was also made sense because, like, we were like, okay, we're doing this for recording, and it's also right. Monday night, so it's just yeah. like... Yeah. Keep it light. Yeah. Um, okay, let's do... Let me flip this up. And then we can 
get on about our day. Yeah. <clears throat> but also, I was like, oh, there's horses on it. <laughs> Nay. <laughs> and chucker is a polo term, apparently, yeah, according it's like, it's, to this, uh, this it, description here. I think it's something to do with like the period of play. Mm. Is that like the ref who drops the puck in hockey? No, like, I think it's like the actual just the actual amount of time that goes by during a some sort of match. Sound like a chick thing? No, we're really losing our hold on the polo fan demographic that was such a staple uh, for us going back the entire history of the podcast. Ah, oh, there's somebody. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, how dare? Well, that one person how is enough to count you, as a staple. Uh, all how dare you? You insult my favorite sport. I watch it on the ESPN. sport of kings. Those kings who don't have the gout. Oh, yes. Which they wouldn't get gout if they <laughs> were nomads. But anyway, we're not, we're not done. What, what are we ranking this as? Do you want uh, the beer or the joke I just made? That's <laughs> zero, none, done. Negative zero out yeah. of ten. Yeah. Um, give the beer about a three. Give it a three and a half. I'll do 3.25. Cool. All right. Um, so, Rob, why are we talking about Nomads today? What was the reason? What was the rationale behind any of it? So, for pretty much anyone who's followed geopolitics for more than five minutes, uh, one of the things that always drives these conversations is some sort of grand narrative of a big clash that defines the geopolitical landscape. These days, there's all this talk about whether or not there's going to be a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. You had the Huntington Clash of Civilizations narrative as a big thing. You had the Cold War itself in the latter half of the 20th century, World War II, and so on. But one of the things that's kind of interesting about today is that the single most important geopolitical dynamic for pretty much most of human history went away a little over a century ago. And that was the clash between nomadic societies and settled societies. That was the core of geopolitics everywhere from the Middle East and China back in the ancient period to North America in the, uh, in the 19th century with uh, different nomadic Native American tribes clashing with the United States and Mexico. So what was the core thing in geopolitics in a lot of ways for thousands of years has pretty recently gone away. And that's a weird change when you look at the whole scale of history. Definitely. I mean, if you look at the numbers now, I think it's supposed to be between 30 and 40 million uh, people are still considered nomadic. And that's not, I don't think it's counting like, internationally displaced people or anything like that i think it's just the people who choose to live nomadic and yeah. have chosen yeah, and to live still, still have the ability yeah. to do so because apparently it's in some countries they know like, like we're gonna talk about several issues why that's it's kind of ended but like that, that set of like 7.7 billion people so that's a very small amount of you know to be like, spread around the rest of the world is pretty pretty small in number yeah but you mentioned internally displaced people and there has been kind of this shake-up of the world order i mean we still have very significant settled states and borders that we haven't had for most of human history. But um, you do have people now who live or currently live in the in a kind of a semi-nomadic transient lifestyle that maybe 
um, were a part of this kind of settled system that we have and, and that we've have, we have had for a while. And you have, you know, the, you know, land rights, water rights, who has claim to what kind of thing kind of reemerging now um, in ways that, you know, you couldn't really predict back before, you know, this kind of global turmoil picked up. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, definitely for the IDPs, it's, it's been an issue that you've seen it. We've seen it, you know, obviously in Syria, which has been a huge issue for Western Europe and for the certain countries. And then there's like um, the Lake uh, Lake Chad Basin area. Yeah, Haram, issues with cl- yeah. issues with climate change in the Sahara. Like yeah. you know, the, all this stuff. I mean, it's I, I I don't have any numbers in front of me about how it, if, if it's worse now than it was 20 30 years ago but oh, yeah, nothing back you know there's that that there's been kind of a it's obviously now we don't have this kind of situation where there's a conflict between you know the civilized quote-unquote uh country or states of the indus river valley or the um, yeah, euphrates I, and the nomadic tribesmen but you still have this kind of you know fight between I, I, what I, makes I, sense versus what or what yeah settled society versus free yeah i think yeah. i think you kind of nailed it in the head because some of their views on it look at like you know the chinese view of the like mongols like you know like that like you know like, what, a thousand years ago or so yeah and that kind of issue that we've had of you know, just like okay they're all savages they're this and that and then oh god we're getting our ass kicked by them we and our- that memory doesn't go away yeah in a couple generations that stays well i mean the the case of China is a particularly interesting one because, I mean, Chinese history has been hugely defined for thousands of years by sort of self-defined Chinese civilization Uh centered around certain river valleys being kind of constantly challenged with how to deal with not just one but a variety of different uh, nomadic peoples to the west and north and, and so forth. I mean, we think of, of the Mongols, but that was just one particular episode. Yeah, right. And you actually have a sort of an interesting historical pattern of sort of periods of kind of messy back and forth between war diplomacy and trade, often a fuzzy mix of, of all of those between a given Chinese dynasty and different nomadic peoples yeah. past their area of control punctuated by points where you'll have one of those either tribes or confederations of tribes unite into a more powerful geopolitical force actually come in and overthrow and conquer uh, a Chinese dynasty but what happens from there is often kind of interesting because usually what will happen is they'll still have a much smaller population than China itself does, mm-hmm. and they'll end up just kind of grafting themselves on as a leadership group to existing Chinese yeah. bureaucracy and society, and a lot of them end up getting kind of absorbed into China over time and losing distinct identity. Yeah. And that's that's kind of what's interesting about the, the sort of issue between the advantages of the settled society and the advantage of the nomadic society. Nomadic society, if you have a drought somewhere, you move somewhere else. Um, settled society is typically more, you know, you higher crop yield. Like if you're an agricultural society, you farm more, you have more children, the population booms after a couple generations. But if you have a, a war, famine, catastrophe, 
you're more vulnerable to that than any of these nomadic yeah i mean both are subject to shocks but they're different kinds of shocks right and so one event whether it's a a human caused event or an environmental event can affect a settled society and a nomadic society in the same general area very differently yeah and can shift the balance between them as well but also you can end up getting complicated ripple effects Mm -hmm. i mean you have sort of interesting dynamics between china and certain nomadic tribal confederacies that are thought by a lot of scholars to have essentially triggered a chain of events that end up with the huns going into europe uh all all of this being connected in in this convoluted chain of different populations Mm -hmm. nomadic and settled alike clashing and moving against each other and into each other's territory in different ways yeah and you had the same thing with you know waves of various turkic turkic sultanates or even before that was a term coming in moving in um using this kind of eastern military innovation to really run through people and then kind of not not absorbing almost as but being absorbed and becoming this sort of headmen of certain areas but adjusting to the conquered population and and becoming a, a sort of a within a couple generations being that being that settled unit that didn't really exist in your previous history yeah it's like there's there's i think that one of the better examples is you know there's genghis khan yeah and you know they were about the og yeah the original original mongol uh he kind of conquered much of the own world that kind of stuff and it was like his next and there was like a kind of capital originally, I think. It was more boys like yurts and that kind of stuff. It was still kind of like, okay, they rotated it coming there or not. Yeah. And then... They could know, pick it up and move it if they needed yeah, to. Yeah, if they needed to. Yeah. Um, but then at the... one of, whatever, whatever, I think... Uh, Ogedai, I think it was like the 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 second... the mm-hmm. where He was like the third son that took over or something like that. He came back and he... Uh, he started building another capital somewhere else. It was like actually like you know, with stone and that kind of stuff, yeah. using like Chinese builders. Because this is what civilization is, right? Yeah. So like it, was, a, it was it was like very quickly to... within like a generation of like okay, well we know we've we kind of conquered to, everything. Let's now have... we need to build and yeah. leave our mark. I, yeah. Well, one of the really interesting things about the <clears throat> about the Mongol case though is, unlike a lot of sort of points in history where you have a, a nomadic confederation as a geopolitical entity that either kind of whichever end of the of the power scale they're on ends up kind of assimilated to a settled society or despite interaction kind of stays separate the mongol empire kind of ends up doing a lot of different kinds of things at the same time it well, doesn't it was have so big one model. and spread over so many different cultural and so you had some bit. Yeah, some they absorbed Buddhist. a lot of different types of governance that worked in some areas, didn't work in the others, and the when yeah when you had direct sort of conflicts of ideas and and strategies among leaders and and sort of leadership claimants uh, in the generations after those initial conquests about kind of how the Mongol Empire should define and govern itself and mm-hmm. how it should relate to the areas that it conquered. So you get a kind of an interesting variety and experimentation and set of debates that's 
more complex and really more well documented historically than we had a chance to see with with a lot of other historical incidences of this. Well, I think another thing, or another couple of good examples are sort of the Arab conquest of the Middle East and the Persian Empire, because the Arabs were nomadic or semi-nomadic tribes, uh, and especially especially in like Saudi Arabia, the Gulf. Yeah, yeah. So they were they were kind of between Persian Rome and then Persian Rome fought a war, kind of wore themselves out, and the Arabs more or less saw their opportunity. They conquer. Oh. Uh, the Christian and the uh, Zoroastrians, they bring their own religion uh, and they essentially graft themselves onto the top of what be, what evolves into a new society. And it's looking backwards right now. You then Now you'd say, oh, it's Arab society, but they took a lot of culture from uh, and ideas from the Persians and the Romans. Yeah. And in that, in that era, Persia was the, I mean, Rome and Persia were on the same level in terms of these settled societies yeah. of the era, like yeah, very central, like or depending on who was in charge, but very centralized, urbanized, yeah. all that, yeah. and and so a lot of that structure ends up getting adapted or adopted and adapted by the conquering nomadic people. So they they come in, and then later you have someone like the Turks or the Mongols that come in and destroy those existing structures, capturing them, and then establishing their own rule on top of what what i'm curious about is why this is such a common theme the kind of settled quote-unquote barbarics or, or unsettled quote-unquote barbaric society coming in and taking on you know centralized bureaucratic empires and completely overwhelming them and then sort of being like, you know, this is actually a good way to do things. Let's. Why? Why did that keep happening so many times over and over again? So, I mean, there are a lot of layers to that. I mean, one is is that the the con the conflict in arms race, so to speak, yeah. didn't always tip one way or the other. It fluctuated, mm-hmm. and that drove the development of settled societies as much as nomadic societies. I mean, you look at the development of civilization in the Mediterranean and Middle East, you have some of your earliest real geopolitical powers like the Neo-Assyrian Empire basically emerge as the players that they are because they're terribly hated uh, (laughs) totalitarian oppressors to other settled peoples, but they have the military capacity... To yeah. block those nomadic confederacies that are otherwise incredible resources, incredible organization, all of that. So why isn't that always an advantage? Well, I, I think because the Mongol conquest was twenty, thirty years, and they conquered half of Eurasia or something yeah, like that. I, so. I, well, I think I think well, I think the, the first part of why they kind of moved to like that that stationary kind of settled thing was easier to maintain power that way. They yeah. started a taxation so that tax at taxation system rather than um tributary i think it's also why they prevailed i think why they initially did because the other things they're fighting against like the chinese empire and stuff lacked innovation and battlefield mm-hmm. tactics like they kind of just they thought very much inside the box and how everything was established well, it was also splintered at that time they, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah yeah they, yeah, they so, were they still, attacked at a very opportune time for, oh yeah but I, I think it was also and then the resources of china gave them the ability to I yeah. think I think their their ability to move 
quickly and efficiently was kind of based off their system. Well, but so that right there, I think, hits it kind of the gigantic topic that we haven't hit on, which is when we're talking about nomadic societies in this conversation, we're talking about a very, very specific kind. Yeah. We're talking about horse-based nomadic societies. Yeah. That That is the sort of social, technological, military revolution that creates this whole dynamic. And, I mean, it's, it's the societies on sort of the steppe border areas um, in Eurasia that first domesticate the horse. Yeah. And that gives them a huge advantage in speed and mobility that changes the game in how they relate to to other peoples around them and then settled societies learning how to adopt the use of the horse mm-hmm. in turn becomes a key part of sort of how the arms race mm-hmm. unfolds well, ever afterwards. I, I mean, this... 12th, these 12th century uh, polo players and horse girls <laughs> circling around the Great Wall and, <laughs> and taking China. Take damn way. <laughs> so it was it was it a shitty wall? It was a city wall. <laughs> another another interesting point that I just kind of thought of as we're talking about this is one of the reasons we the we see these nomadic peoples and their conquests as successful is because they were the ones that were actually successful. And so it in part it is because they're nomadic and they're riding horses and they have these sort of built-in advantages of military but or military you know like for instance horse archers um what the mongolians mobility yeah mobility logistics Uh, but a lot of it was also the empires that they conquered were in a stagnant period or fighting in civil wars so uh and and they saw them as sort of ripe for the picking so for instance so what you're saying is history is not so simple it wasn't just the one thing (laughs) no it was just (laughs) because like the mongol i mean China, the Chinese empires dealt with decades and decades of invasions from, you know, the steppes and all Mongolia. that. But they, they didn't invade successfully when the Tang Dynasty was marching out into the Gobi Desert at its height. Like this, they, you know, they were able to pick and choose, and nobody paid attention to them until they picked the times to attack. Right? Yeah. I, well, I mean, that hits at something that's or really history key. didn't. I don't know. But, I mean, that hits at something that's really key. When you have a settled society with specific population centers and fixed yeah. sort of strategic points and resources, that means there is a defined area and centers of gravity that someone can come in and conquer. Whereas if you're a nomadic society with sort of a large territory that you exploit, you have a dramatic qualitative difference in strategic depth mm-hmm. you don't have to defend you just move. particular yeah. points if you somebody can, you can move and keep just drawing out the logistics of your opponent until they exhaust themselves that's something i actually made a note to myself for it was that you know it's the rope-a-dope i mean it's yeah didn't call it that but no i said uh, the nomads are basically permanent guerrilla warfare and I think and basically pick and choose the battles and move away and basically kind of delay battle when they want to and get engaged. There's no there's no central place they can attack. There's no like okay we, okay we you've you've done this we're gonna attack your capital yeah. which doesn't exist. And also, yeah, there's, there's no a, center of power. Yeah, this idea also the idea of borders that didn't really factor into it. Like oh they crossed 
our border we were honor bound to no that didn't really exist or you know people but not, not only did the armies move the people moved but so, borders are borders are real loose i mean yeah <laughs> I, I don't know if that's necessarily true you like you look at uh the goths crossing the uh, danube into the roman empire right before the sack you know a couple hundred years before the sack of rome or a little bit less there was a defined border but you have sort of almost o- over a hundred thousand people. Well, the Romans had the defined border. Yeah. Or okay. Yeah, but yeah. The, oh, they, I guess you're you're saying the nomads. Did they have a wall? Uh they had a river and some forts. <laughs> no, but the the like the Goths they Should they were it wasn't just an army. It was them moving with their women, their children, their old. Yeah, their, yeah. It was it, it was, was the entire horde. society it was, was moving. And it was in it obviously maybe it was a little different in the Mongol case. Well, but, and and what they yeah. run into is you know they cross into sorry uh, they cross into into Rome and they find you know they they start in uh, Italians. No, at that <laughs> hey. point it was a lot more complicated than just Italians. Very reducci, but they. <laughs> Sorry, they start an insurrection and they realize that the Romans can't handle the violence here. You know, they can't contain it. And also, by the way, there's a shit ton of money here. You know, we can yeah. raid, raid these farms, get food, get gold, all this. And so they take advantage of that. Well, that. So that actually kind of raises another interesting dynamic, though, which is that the Romans dealt with migrating populations successfully tons of times before that Mm -hmm. so did the chinese and various Mm -hmm. other settled societies there there are times where they ended up in sort of existential conflict with nomadic societies and there are times when they either cooperated or co-opted them yeah i and that i mean that's something that's sometimes lost when you look back on melodramatic depictions of the uh the scary barbarians oh, yeah. coming over the horizon yeah well it's it's funny because the attila the hun was actually he fought a number of times on the side of one or another claimant to the western imperial throne um and many of these these so-called you know quote-unquote barbarians as we said then or say or say now were actually had either fought as auxiliaries with the romans uh, in any number of civil wars, and and so you run into this thing where the nomadic peoples actually served as a force multiplier for the internal wars, and then when they saw their chance, hey, this is really rich territory, we've been here for a while, they kind of see themselves not as Romans or as you know whatever that culture is, but they've adopted a lot of it, and they say, hey, why why not why not us? You know why don't we take the advantage now that everyone else is weak? Does this get into kind of the great man theory of things? Like a few individuals who kind of determine the out or the direction of you know because p- these people, I, the Goths, the Huns, whoever, they had fought as Romans for a while. They had fought as you know they had fought amongst themselves yeah. in Germania. Um, is it is is does this just come down to a few individuals determining? Well, who well, runs well, what well, and just what, is yeah just i think is the key i, word I think that's too simplistic of yeah, an argument I th- but i think what you what you always have in history is a complicated interaction between sort of structural circumstances and trends yeah and sort of individual va- variables sometimes fluke events and Things, sometimes specific mm-hmm, yeah. people where right time right leader right or, or set of circumstances, or I mean, wrong. You, yeah, you have cases where a, a system or a society that 
that otherwise kind of could have been doing fine on its own inertia ends up falling apart because they just had the exact wrong person for yeah. the moment. Well, yeah. Great man, bad man. But it actually, it Day man. <laughs> Nightman. <laughs> God. Um... <laughs> It makes me a, a thought that kind of came from something one of you guys said earlier was just like, you know, why? I mean, it was a lot of a lot of these like nomadic tribes that were trying to do stuff generally failed or didn't do. They weren't. They weren't. Not every single one was the Mongols. Not every single one was right. the Huns. But it's like, what made the choice to be a military, you know, a raiding force even at the, at the base level? Like, what decided like okay, that? Okay, you know what? Stealing shit's better than trying to trade or just you know hunt or be pastoral. And do all that kind of stuff. Like even, even the Mongols, the the penultimate example of this, they conquered the world, and within two generations, they were back to tribal fighting and well, this Khanate versus that. Nice. And that so it, it's even the the biggest baddest nomadic power of all history is which, susceptible to which, that. Which, which makes makes me think of something because um I probably have told a story in the podcast before um. But you know, there's this, there's this story. It's like in, in Iraq in the mid 2000s. It's a base we have in Baghdad, and um, you know, it's it's you know, coalition forces are there, and the Iraq the, the insurgency stopped mortaring this one base because someone went outside and sprayed it in Arabic like we're Mongol and we're back, essentially. The like, Empire well, Strikes Back. No, the, the the Mongols have returned to Iraq and they don't fuck with us. Yeah. Was basically the message. I forget what the exact thing was said. No, but they just it, put. I think they just put up the Mongolian flag and they were like, <laughs> someone asked, "Why don't you fire rockets Mongo- at the Mongolian Mongo- yeah. 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 severed head?" <laughs> yeah, not yet. <laughs> Those are the Gurkhas. Yeah, I mean, given that there are reasons to think that Iraq today still has not agriculturally recovered from the mongol invasion that's insane uh, like it's 800 the, the years scale the scale of that yeah, dick sort of devastation yeah they did some good out. and some bad you know i think mostly bad I mean, both they, sides. They, they, <laughs> they killed tens There's of good millions of people on each side. in an era where yeah but no, I, was, I was listening to something earlier mountain today skulls best mountain well it's yeah well it's like they uh, you know they basically take a city and they're like all right, let's reduce the population, or actually, you take a country. Let's reduce the population from two, like two million to two hundred thousand. That's not in. That wasn't their invention. I mean, oh not at all. The Assyrians, they loved that kind of yeah. strategy of just burning out everything and then making every other random Sumerian city just be like, okay, we'll, you know, we'll we'll take a governor, we'll take a whatever seven a seven hundred BC equivalent of a political officer is, and we'll continue to do our own thing. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so far, we've, we've really been talking about all of these dynamics from sort of the ancient and medieval periods. But this whole, whole pattern of complicated geopolitical relationships between nomadic and settled societies continues up till much more recently, including much closer to our backyard uh, here in the United States, uh, inside the current borders of our own country because you get a, a fascinating chance at sort of comparative experimentation in geopolitics with the introduction of the horse into the equation in North America to see how that new variable affects things compared to the way that it did in Eurasia. <clears throat> and what you see is 
and you, you had, contrary to the simplistic assumptions of a lot of people, you had really complicated and interesting geopolitics in North America before, during, and after the initial European uh, colonization efforts on the continent. But those get transformed tremendously by the introduction of the horse when the Spanish start to to trade them or let them let them loose inadvertently or not uh, in various cases you have the emergence of different tribal societies and confederations that had nothing like that suddenly learn sort of from scratch how to be a european-esque state like iroquois confederacy comanche was well, it an empire? So, so, so the, empire? the Iroquois yeah. were a were a more settled society yeah. uh, that had had a very different model. But you had societies like the like the Comanche that totally transformed their geopolitical position using using the horse to start operating in ways that were much more like what you saw with the Scythians or the Mongols uh, in in Eurasia where they had sort of these these roving territories in which they could hunt, raid, trade, and maneuver, and use the mobility that horses provided to their advantage in all of those activities, and often in very similar strategic ways, going up against settled societies around them. The ways. Well, not just that. I mean, other Native American societies too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just being an ass. Or, or like Mexico, where you had a very hybridized mestizo culture, where you had a lot of people of indigenous uh, ancestry themselves being a large proportion of the population, uh, and particularly once you have uh, Mexico get its independence from the Spanish Empire, uh, operating as a separate geopolitical player in the region they have a really interesting dynamic with the Comanche Empire. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the Comanche Empire ends up essentially devastating uh, the northern swaths of Mexico so badly that when the Mexican-American War happens, the U.S. has virtually no trouble taking over the northern half of the country because it's already a ruin. Yeah, but regarding the settler uh, indigenous dynamic, would you say that would be kind of the tipping point of we're getting into the not only settled in agricultural society, but industrial society. We get to the point where the settled societies have so many advantages that it's impossible and so many people, it's it's impossible for a nomadic existence to, to well, maintain itself in the in well, the levels that it used I, to. I, like my my observations last like couple days, just like doing research for this. Obviously, makes me an expert. Um, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, um, is that you we, can write for Vox now, wiki expert, <laughs> um, future Huff Post editor, <laughs> champion of all. Um, no, it's fighter of the night, man. <laughs> champion of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anywho. Um, no, we we see countries either because borders being created 
Right. So it's, it's stop movement. You can't move your, you know, herd across the fucking border and do you do your thing and kind of move back. Now, since there's actual borders, can't tell me what to do. I mean, Those they can. Those are my sheet. It's called it's called border patrol. <laughs> um, not in the, I mean, not in this country, but like in actually in the stands, you see the movement of people is really difficult now. Um, but then you saw, you know, these weird communist countries doing this whole thing of like, okay. We don't want that. We don't. We don't want people moving. We want ranchers. So China did it heavily. Then the Soviet Union did the same thing. In All the, the Central the Asian country. countries yeah, with yeah. their like, yeah, yeah. We, we have. I mean, the Kazakhs and the yeah, the Uzbeks and everybody else. They have this kind of nomadic history going back to the exactly. almost their primeval. And they're basically like, you yeah. can't do that anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, even before the the communist period, you look at Russian history over the last thousand years. What you had was what was originally a, a much smaller settled society on the European end of, of what's now Russia, kind of gradually in phases conquering more nomadic societies to its east and forcing them by, by military power into the orbit and structures of a settled society. Originally starting because they were considered a threat. Yeah. I mean, that was, mm-hmm. that the, was sort of the existential scar behind the right. psychology of Russian geopolitical thinking. And, and then they got the upper hand and took it strongly in creating the Russian empire. Yeah. And obviously not the same thing in a lot of ways, but analogous, the Russian conquest of Siberia was analogous in a lot of ways to the American conquest, the old West. Um, that kind of dynamic. Um, oh, we did it for the American dream, not for terrible things. Like yeah, but Russia, they did uh, it because they remembered, they remembered. They remembered the Golden it. Horde, and they remembered the, the Mongols coming through. They yeah. did. <laughs> they do. Yeah. They're like, oh fuck, they're back. They yeah. say manifest destiny in Russian. I win. <laughs> Putin forever. If he dies, he dies. <laughs> It's a direct translation. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but I mean, in, one thing that is that is genuinely tr- uh, similar about both cases, the expansion of Russia and the expansion of the United States across our respective continents, and, and of various other countries too, is this process of actually carving up pretty much the entire planet into fixed defined borders of modern nation states. Mm-hmm. Whereas through most of history, yeah, you had certain areas that were pretty cleanly defined core territory of one state or other, but a lot of the planet was made up of fuzzier boundaries and networks and of moving people and mm-hmm. different sort of settled spots that just made for a very different dynamic than than this more modern model. And even now you have that dynamic. Obviously on a much smaller scale, you don't have great steppe empires rampaging across, um, you know, the Eurasian landmass anymore. But you do have... will rise again. (laughs) (laughs) Make Scythia great again. But there are, you know, as long as humans have been able to pile up a bunch of rocks and say this is mine that's yours you know there have been fights over land rights there's been fights over water rights you step off my um, rocks you know tradition you know mont- there's rocks. this this con this 
continual conflict between modernity and tradition. And for a lot of people, tradition means living off the land like our ancestors did, whether it's the Bedouin in the Middle East or um, in the Maghreb, the Berbers in um, Northern and the Sahara region. I mean, we have the Mm -hmm. indigenous, Brazil has a ton of indigenous issues in in the Amazon basin. So this, <laughs> this, and this doesn't yeah. go away and it's not insignificant. It may not be on the front page, oh, oh, it's, but it's, it's incredibly it's like, the best, the best, yeah. the best example of like modern day nomads. It didn't truly mean modern is, is the Romani people who right. are all over Europe and in the U S and they kind of move around. They're not only so stateless, they accept the fact that they're stateless. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, and it's, don't it's, really, and yeah. they're, they're basically, their background is mostly doing like trading and like, Tinker, so basically they're 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 traders. They, they, they all have specialities. Come into a town, like oh, I'm a blacksmith. I'm this thing, and kind of do their yeah. thing, and then move on. And like you know, it's it's that's the most modern I think David. Because like, I think most other countries, when you consider somebody who's from another country, it's like oh, well, the diaspora, like the Palestinians, for oh, example, yeah, you, which is which is not really nomadic, but it's just more like, more like when I even displaced. Yeah, yeah, displaced. Yeah, there's a place that they're from that they're settled. Yeah, whereas yeah, the Romani or gypsies as they're known i don't know if that's bc anymore but the no, idea no, that no they're not necessarily from and they're from wherever their wherever their caravans take them you know it's yeah. that's it's, it's it's a totally different mentality and it's something that's created a lot of problems in the last 150 100 years in europe with yeah that mentality that you yeah. know this hard borders and nationalities and even with the eu i mean it's there's, it's been no easier for the Romani to that figure or, out. That and your pains are terribly fucking racist, but hey. Oh, well, who isn't? Yeah. Me. <laughs> Ryan's That's an good. equal opportunity. I gotta hater. go. I got- <laughs> yeah, I hate, I, hate, I hate everyone equally. He's a equal opportunity hater. Yes. Woke but AF. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting kind of issue these days how much of a focus there is on borders and border security across the world and how much of a concern the movement of populations in all kinds of ways has been in response to more recent developments when all along you've had a range of populations, some nomadic and some settled, who have modern borders cutting right through their own populations and territory that have been there since before those borders were. Uh, And so you have uh, communities that are, in in some cases, finding it increasingly difficult to maintain movement and exchange with their their family, friends, neighbors, um, traditional trade routes, uh, all kinds of things, because they're still sort of operating on a, a certain social and geographic pattern that is just structurally different and running up against a more modern structure of nation states with clearly defined borders and bureaucracies and militaries that enforce them. Uh, and that's a set of challenges from a, a humanitarian and cultural and security perspective that is uh, not going away anytime soon, even if there aren't any sort of truly autonomous nomadic societies uh, operating outside the modern nation state system 
in a in a consistent, enduring way anymore. Especially when you have people fleeing catastrophe, famine, war, whatever, who sort of revert to this nomadic, stateless lifestyle out of necessity. Well, That's certainly. But even not going then, away. a lot of times nowadays, they're I don't want to say herded because it sounds, but like they're put into you yeah. know, displaced Tanks. persons camps, and but they're and still that, the same mentality of being. You're, yeah. you're living somewhere temporarily, but this isn't your home. But their their movement is still restricted in that you know they can't really. Right. It's well, kind of like how you have the, the the Palestinians in in Jordan building up their own cities, but they're technically in Lebanon, camps. So they're yeah. Them is like, it's, yeah. It's like they're, they're it's, called camps, but they're fucking it's, cities. It's different now. levels of nomadicism, but it's still yeah. kind of that mentality of we're not from here, we're from somewhere else, and this is just this temporary stop. But I think if there's one thing that that seems to be a sort of unifying feature across different traditionally nomadic societies in different places. It's a cultural and psychological value, not on movement per se, but on freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the idea of whether where they are now is where they're bound to. It's that they can if they move choose. whenever they want. Which is exactly the opposite situation that a lot of displaced populations find themselves in today. Whereas, as Kevin said, they are often confined and and practically herded uh, and dehumanized in the process by people and systems with more power than they have. Right. And many previously nomadic peoples... Uh, find themselves in that circumstance now, which is as oppressive and unnatural for them as it would be for any of us. For any of us in settled societies to be told you have to live out on the lamb kind of thing. It's, yeah. Or, is... or for any of us who, who do live in settled societies to be told, no, we're going to pick you up and move you to this spot yeah. here and you can't leave. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. It'd be like, New Jersey or something. That's your own personal hell. Right? It is. I think it's everyone's <laughs> personal hell. Yeah, it's called New Jersey. Love you guys. Yeah, nah. But anyway, um, Ryan doesn't love anybody. <laughs> yeah, well, I was talking about. I don't. I don't, I don't hate Even... anybody. I don't love anybody. It's kind of just like this. This. This space I live in. <laughs> um, but anyway, we're out of time, and uh, you already gave your fucking last minute speech, so I'm not gonna give. You can give the option for last minute thoughts. Unless it's Lex and Kevin. Unless it's Lex and Kevin. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so now, okay, cool. Well, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, just gonna say, uh, country roads take me home. That's the yeah. the motto of the nomads. That whatever, Kevin. Can, like that. a Rolling Stone <laughs> is you actually the motto that. of the nomads. <laughs> Thank well, you. Well, that Papa was, was a Rolling Stone. That was almost nomadic. I hate you all. Goodbye. Hate you too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, I tried. guys, I'm so excited. I got my first. Uh... Yeah, that was a really good point. Oh well, let's go. Yeah. <coughs> Coronavirus. Oh, Got to take 14 days off work. <laughs> we just have to do a follow-up episode. And so how's the coronavirus? What sucks?
So we are broadcasting live from four separate quarantine zones. <laughs> <laughs> We're Skyping. It's great. Are we quarantined because we have it or because we don't have it? Oh, my God. <laughs> the coronavirus the fire, inside the it's, room. It's gone from that to human to computer <laughs> and then to human. <laughs> I was going to go that's with a, Schrodinger's a... coronavirus. <laughs> we simultaneously have it and don't have it, so we're quarantined for both. Yeah, okay. if you don't get checked. Yeah. No, no. What Alex said with the last night—that's the new, that's the new Matrix Four movie. What? <laughs> the virus goes to like regular <laughs> virus to computer <laughs> virus. Yeah, yeah, that's the next Matrix. Matrix Four. <laughs> yeah, which they're filming right now. Are they seriously? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're filming in San Francisco, apparently. They're doing some crazy shit. I mean, it's a dystopian enough destination these days. Also, Keanu Reeves <laughs> looks the same age as he has always looked. Yeah. He, he was like 14, and he looked like Neo, I'm sure. <laughs> well, that was like three I years know, ago. I know, Kung Fu. That was, that was pre-John Wick and being like, oh, he's terrifying. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Does his own stunts. Does. It's a fucking Anyway. <laughs>